Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. People don't understand how to create back then like they do today. And I think that if you had things that they've created today, how to finagle things about this or that, or try to put yourself involved with certain situations that you can actually get away with back then, you got away with it just because. Because, you know, if someone comes to stab you or shoot you, if you say something, I mean, you're next. <laughs> so that's, what, that's, that's the kind of environment that we lived in. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very excited. This is one of my so excited times in my life because I get to be with a guy who's a huge inspiration for me, Dennis Rodman. And without further ado, I am going to give him the proper introduction. I'm sure when I'm done with this, he will have slipped into an entire coma and will not even be alive after this. But here it goes. Dennis Rodman was born in Trenton, New Jersey on May 1361. His mother moved the family to Dallas where she struggled to keep her children fed and clothed by taking almost any job that came her way. Curiously, Rodman didn't at first appear to be all that athletic or outwardly going. He was short for his age in high school. He was only 5'6 and was cut from his high school football team and later quit the basketball team because he wasn't getting enough playing time. After graduating high school in 79, Rodman's future appeared uncertain. He found work where he could, including a janitor position at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. In his off time, though, he could be found at local basketball courts, where now he was 6'7", and he was a force as a basketball player. He caught the attention of the coaches of Cook County Junior College in Gainesville, Texas, who offered Rodman the chance to attend the school. And then he proved to be a dominant player for the program, was soon invited to enroll at Southeastern Oklahoma State. Robman's on-the-court tenacity overwhelmed opponents, and during his three years at the school, he averaged close to 26 points and 16 rebounds per game. Seven years after graduating high school in 1986 NBA draft, the Detroit Pistons made Rodman, the 25-year-old at the time, a second-round pick. 
unbelievable. His arrival helped usher in a new era of basketball for the Pistons, led by head coach Chuck Daly, whom Rodman came to adore, and point guard Isaiah Thomas. Detroit became one of the elite teams in the NBA and won the championship in 89 and again in 90. And Rodman was the huge reason why. A fierce defender and tenacious rebounder, he was selected to the 1990 NBA All-Star team and tapped as Defensive Player of the Year that same season. In 92, he won the first of seven consecutive rebounding crowns. Following the retirement of Daly, he was traded to the San Antonio Spurs and prior to the 96 season, traded again this time to the Chicago Bulls where he'd go on the team up with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen to win three consecutive NBA titles with Phil Jackson. Following his tenure in Chicago, Robin signed with the Lakers for a brief run and then concluded his career with the Dallas Mavericks. And all Rodman, who is one of the league's dominant rebounders of all time, would finish with five NBA championships, two all-star appearances, named the league's top defensive player seven times, and in 2011 was inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, an honor to meet you, my friend, Dennis Rodman. <laughs> what's up? What's up? I'm so excited. I have so many questions to ask you, but what we're going to do since our time is probably limited. Right. We're on location <laughs> in this bar right, called yeah. the Class of 47, and there's people talking in the background. Was it John Wayne who John, owned the John, place? John Wayne. Wow. Right. There's pictures of John Wayne everywhere. everywhere right? so here we are. So what I'd love to do, because this is about the journey, and so many people do interviews with you about all these crazy things. I'm not interested in any of that stuff. Let other people do that stuff. I'm interested in your journey from humble beginnings to how you got where you were. So take us way back to where you grew up, what it was like for you, and what the situation was economically, and what your first inspiration was to play basketball. Growing up, um, coming from the... Uh Projects and um, going to you know prison, not prison, but jail, a few times. You know, living through the uh, trials and accolations of uh, living as a in a, in, a, in a poor neighborhood, and uh, then reaching to somewhat start up in, in college and in the NBA. But uh, but this it is you know like most NBA players back in the say seventies. Early '80s. I mean, we, when you struggle back then, because you know, when, you, when your mom's ma um, when your mom's married, when she's not married and she has three jobs, and you don't get to see your mother, it's very tough for her, her and us to really survive in those uh, conditions. But uh, luckily for luckily for us, uh, we you know, when, once you adapted to those conditions, you pretty much can um, you know, you, you pretty much you pretty much be settled in the in the conditions. And for me, it was just more like, you know, five foot four, five foot five guy, you know, they had no direction. What were the conditions where you were living when you were younger, and how many people were in your family, and where was your father? Well, I mean, like most most men back in the 60s, you know, 60s, early 70s, I think they didn't have any criteria of being, you know, being a father or being a dad or something like that. You know, I, I was really used to it because I really didn't even think about having a dad because my mother was always there, you know. And um, So you never knew your dad? I never knew. I never knew my dad in the beginning. I just probably saw him when I was five years old. When I was five years old, so and I, I vaguely remember him then. 
you know, like I say, it's just it's like a blurred memory of, of who, who he was then. But I really didn't really didn't think about it too much when I was growing up because I'm so used to not having a father. And the place that you actually live, could you describe the apartment that you guys lived in and how many kids were in the family and what the situation was? Well, like I said, you know, a lot of people can't relate to the situation living in, you know, like in, in the 60s, it was very tough in the 60s, you know, growing up with the racial tension, with the rioting and stuff like that, and the projects, you know, with the Martin Luther King issue, with the JFK issues and stuff like that. I mean, living those conditions, man, it's, it's more like you get so used to living like that, and you don't know any other way but to live like that. So it's like, I was very comfortable living like that. So. During the rioting, during the rioting and stuff like that, when you see people getting shot, cut, stabbed, you name it, I saw it all, and I thought that was, I thought that was normal. <laughs> Living in those conditions, you know, you look at, you look at those things and say, wow, that's really bad. But to us, it was normal because we saw it every day, and uh, you saw it in, in the household, you saw it in the neighborhood, you saw it in the parks, you saw it, you name it. And I didn't know anything about right and wrong, about white and black people. I never knew anything about that stuff. You know, I, you know, I just loved living and having a good time being a kid. How did you have a good time knowing that you could be <laughs> killed at any moment? Well, you know, I'm just saying when you adapt to something like that, when you adapt. And, uh, you know, a lot of kids today don't know how to adapt. <laughs> you know, they always, they're so used to having things given to them today. Then then it's more like, okay, great, whatever we can get. Hey, let's let's do it. You know, playing marbles, playing jacks, playing this, playing that. You know, hopscotch, white chalk on concrete. That was right. Kicking cans and stuff like that. Racing popsicle sticks down the river, stuff like that. Those things were normal because we thought that was like great. You know, but uh, we didn't even thought about living out the box. So that was that was the main thing about us. You know how people say, "Well, I was almost killed, but I used my sense of humor to save myself," or "I almost did this, but..." I misdirected them there. Tell us the first time or the closest time you ever felt you could have been killed and how you diffused the situation and changed the outcome. Well, I can't say that I've always been killed. I mean, every day your life is in danger in that environment. Your life is in danger because you never know who's going to come around the corner. You never know who's going to shoot you. You never know who's going to be stabbed or something like that because you could be in a misfire, <laughs> you know, because it's because you in the vicinity and uh it just like i said you know it's just it's very difficult to really explain how life living like that lets you really go back and, and read the history and, and look at the history on tv and just it, and that's how you could say low middle class low class people as we were in the ghetto lived and like i said most of the people in the ghetto i mean nine times out of ten somebody's got shot that day or somebody got stabbed that day and most of the time when people got shot or stabbed Everybody will run over there too and just check it out. Who was it this time? What day of did this person get shot? Who's doing a drug deal? Who's doing this? Who's doing? I mean, it was just every day. It was not a day that didn't go by that somebody didn't get stabbed or shot. And just luckily for us, you know, people don't understand how to create back then like they do today. And I think that if you had things that they've created today, how to finagle things about this or that or try to put yourself involved with certain situations that you can actually get away with back then you got away with it just because because you know if someone comes to stab you or shoot you if you say something i mean you're next <laughs> so that's what that's, that's the kind of environment that we lived in now you seem like you're saying that you were immune to it but clearly at one point in time 
you had to run over to the scene and look down and notice that it might have been one of your best friends. When was the first time that something happened that it really crushed your heart and affected you as opposed to the immunity that you were feeling? I, I don't know how to explain it because when you see it so much every day, you say it probably been like 200 killings or 200 shootings that year. Literally every day somebody got stabbed. And we knew who was a drug dealer. We knew who was, you know, robbing people. We we knew it. We knew who was, you know, out, because people would say, who was it? You know, it's like, you know, they knew who it was. That's why they go to certain apartments, certain places where people are at. And, you know, so it's like, it really didn't hit home because it's more like, you know, it's more like it hit home. My mother, she'll say, hey, you know, it could have been you guys. It could have been your sister. It could have been your cousin, you know, because my whole family, my cousin, my grandmother, everybody, we all lived in the same project. So we didn't have to go too far to uh, see relatives. So it's like, you know, about 15, 20, 25, 30 family members living in the same complex. And so whenever we did things together, it's more like we did it. And luckily for me, I think we only had one person in our family got shot and stabbed. So luckily for us, but clearly for us, we, we really wasn't involved with too much of the, of the drug, uh, drug trafficking that was going on then. We were just pretty much going outside playing football, baseball, anything that we can put our hands on. That's what we pretty much was doing every day. And all the kids would go inside the uh, complex and just play together. But but you know when you hear when you hear a shot, everybody said, "Oh, who got shot today?" <laughs> so that was pretty much like that. That's how we looked at it. You knew the difference between right and wrong, though. Oh yeah. So, what was the first thing you started doing that you got in trouble for that was wrong? Well, you didn't really get in trouble like that because I really didn't do anything that's really bad, bad. But you said you went to jail a couple of times. Oh, that was like, that's when I grew up. Yeah, so it's like, no, I didn't do anything bad. You know, stole money from my mother or go break into a school and ride skateboard and bicycle, stuff like that. We didn't do anything like steal like automobiles or, you know, radios or anything like that. We never did anything like that. It was more like we just did the most simple things in the world that we could actually get out of. And then, like I said, once you got older, once we got older, it got a little more intense. How about you know, stealing and, and trying to <laughs> try to maneuver how to get away with it, stuff like that. When you're teenagers, but when, when you start doing stuff like that back then, and we're so stupid about bull crap, that we, okay, great, we could just break into something. Okay, great, we'll, we'll take this, we'll take this, take that. And this is how naive we were, that the fact that we didn't know they had cameras in the building. <laughs> so that's how naive we were. <laughs> so... We think we can away with we got away with it. Oh my God, you know, this is great. Let's, let's go do it again. Stuff like that. We thought it was okay, this is cool to do this. As long as we don't hurt nobody or kill somebody or stab somebody. We thought just going and breaking in here, maybe stealing something that's worth like you know, twenty, fifty bucks or something like that, and then nobody would miss it. But surely that we didn't know, yeah, they did. <laughs> so it's like okay, great. And then, you know, you think you got away with it, the next thing you know, two weeks later you got a knock on your door, hit some cops. <laughs> And then you knew what's up, you know, because they're there for a reason to come and get you and put you in jail. And my mother didn't stop it at all. I mean, she's, when she saw me go to jail, she said, well, see, whenever. That's how it was right there. When people go to jail, see, you whenever. So it's, it was, like I said, for me, it was, a, you know, looking back now, it was a great, great educational thing for me. There's all different kinds of parents, and when parents work a lot, 
There's the parents that tell their children they love them when they put them to bed. There's the parents that never tell their children that they love them, but they know that they love them. Where was the spectrum of where your mother fell in? Was she an affectionate woman towards you? Was she tell you that she loved you, or you oh, just no, she, knew that she loved you? Oh no, she she, didn't, she never told us anything about that stuff. She like never that. said I love you, Dennis. Oh no, not one time. No, not one time. I mean, my sister used to tell you the same story. No, she never did because she had no time to do it because she was always under stress, working so much, you know, three jobs a day. We didn't know anything about love or caring and stuff like that. We just knew that we, as three kids, we always hung around with each other and took care of each other because we was, uh, you know what, I would say abandoned kids living with our mother, but it was more like that's the only way we knew how to live or just take care of each other because we knew my mom was gone somewhere when she was doing her thing, working and whatever. And no, she never said that she loved us, which I really don't look at it like she was a bad mother. I mean, she had to do what she had to do. So we just, we just did our thing. And so going forward in your life, did you become like your mother, like in your relationships? Were you the kind of guy who couldn't tell a person that you loved them? Or did you do just the opposite of your mother and you became very affectionate and tell women that you love them and people in your life you love them? No, I think that I'm more like my mother. <laughs> You're more like your mother. Oh, yeah. I, I catch myself every day doing that. You know, I say, oh, my God, I'm just like my damn mother, right? Because, you know, it's like, I, it's hard. For, I can say, you know, I, I love my kids, yes. I love my kids. But Do you tell them you love them? Oh, yeah. So them. you are different then? Well, it, it's not like, you know, like, run and grab and say, I love you. It's more like, I love you. We hope you guys doing well. <laughs> that kind of stuff. That kind of love, you know. But I think that, you know, back then it was like people didn't really know how to do that. We didn't understand how to go hug somebody and give them emotional affection. I never saw that. Well, I lived that. <laughs> no one did that. No one in the projects told their kids they loved them. I didn't hear it. I mean, I didn't even see it, you know, because, you know, you see, like I said, we'd go out there and be playing in, in, the, uh, in the playground and stuff like that, and you see the mother, father, they all over there smoking and whatever and stuff like that. But it was like that every day. It was like, you know, we you know, come in run it and hug your mother or father. No. It was more like, okay, guys, time to eat. That was it. <laughs> that was pretty much it right there. Wow, that's intense. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So you're in high school and you're five foot six, which is hard for me to imagine because my kids are five foot two and they're in fifth and sixth grade. So you're five foot six, you're not really that athletic, apparently, you're not outgoing. And do you have dreams in high school or you have visions like, hey, I want to do this for a living? 
or do you just go through and say, I just want to get out of this town? <laughs> no, man, you don't have no damn goals, man. I mean, like I say, living, living royally like that, you don't have any goals. I mean, what are you going to shoot for? I mean, you can't shoot like, okay, great, I'm going to go and make $100,000. Hell no. <laughs> you ain't doing that. So going to high school, I was like five foot four. My sister was like six foot one. My other sister was six foot, and they was all American high school and stuff like that. So I pretty much basically lived vicariously through them. And I'm more like I played football. I was pretty good in football at five foot four. But other than that, I had no aspiration, inspiration about anything. Because I just, I just wanted to just go through life just being an average you know, human being. That was my whole goal right there, just being an average, an average guy. That's it. That's the average guy. You know, I'm probably have kids probably living in the middle of low class. Uh, community. So that was basically my whole thing. That's what I wanted to do. All right. So take me through the process of what happens to you step by step. So you're graduating high school, presumably, and now it's like get a job and get out of this apartment or help me out or whatever it is. <laughs> and so you take all these odd jobs. So take us through what happened in your body in your mind, in your heart, that changed that philosophy, like I just want a regular job and maybe raise kids in Trenton, to I am going to have a work ethic, I'm going to be a professional athlete, I have a vision, I could do this. When do you see the first glimpse that, holy shit, I think I, think I could do this? Well, like I said, you don't have any any goals or any um, any direction when you're coming in, when you're going living in that in that environment. When I was 18 years old, let's see, I pretty much been in jail like 15, 20 times already. You were in jail 15 or 20 times oh, at 18. What, oh yeah. What was the worst offense you had? And <laughs> that, wasn't even, that wasn't even that bad. <laughs> it's just more like going to jail for like two or three days, come out, maybe a month later go back to jail. But for but, like what, stealing a bicycle or? Uh, just sitting stuff in the neighborhood. Yeah. Just sitting stuff in the neighborhood, maybe go down three or four miles go go take something here and there maybe go to a store and steal like chips and bubble gum and stuff like that so but you go to jail for those stuff back then you went to jail for that and left high school my mother kicked me out uh 18 so so she kicked you out you have no money in your pocket oh no nothing she kicks you out you don't have a place to stay right where do you stay and how do you survive you just do what come natural. Did you sleep on the street at you all? Sleep on the street. You so you're homeless street. for a little you bit. You sleep in, you know, people in backyards. I used to sleep in my friends' houses and stuff like that, and and you know, just you walk through the night and try to find a place to, you know, put your head down or something like that. But like I said, it was so we were so used to doing this thing. It, it felt so natural doing it, and it's more like only thing you felt so bad about. You, you know, you probably have a little hatred for your mother because she she actually threw you out, <laughs> threw you out. And uh, and I, I went through a period when I said, you know, screw her, screw her. You know, but but the more I lived in the street, the more I understood why I became like a nobody. As far as like didn't want to work, I didn't want to work and do anything. I just wanted to stay home maybe clean the house or, you know, to do something to help my mother around the house. But I didn't realize the fact that she needed help as far as money to pay the rent and get the food, or take care of the car, you know, take care of us and stuff but like that. But she never said, Dennis, I need you to get a job and give me some money for the rent. She never said that. Oh, she said it a lot. Oh, she did. I, I just didn't pay no attention to it. Got it. And so then one day she said, you got to go now. And I said, all right, great. And I pretty much thought it was like a joke. I said, go where? 
<laughs> you know, go where? She said, no, you got to leave the house. And once you leave, it, don't ever come back. She said, don't ever come back. Oh, absolutely. And I said, okay. So I thought it was a joke. I thought she would come back in a couple of days or a week or whatever, come, you know, find me. I'm probably in the neighborhood somewhere living. But she never did. I, took, I think it took like, I think it took like maybe two years. Two years. Two years when she actually came back and said, Dennis, I'll let you come back home, but you got to go get a job. And by that time, I was like six, seven. So you went from five foot four or five foot six to six, seven in a span of a couple of years? Yeah, a couple of years. Then what tripped me out when I went back to the house, I think it was like six foot when I went back to the house. And then and we refrigerated by like, I don't know, about five foot, you know, five foot 11 inches, you know, whatever, feet, yeah. whatever. And every day I used to walk in the kitchen and every day I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, because I'm like, I'm refrigerated right here now. So it's like, wait a minute, I'm growing, right? And, then, and I'm wondering why my pants are so so short, you know, <laughs> they was coming out like, wait a minute. And my shoes didn't fit and all stuff like that. I'm like, wait a minute. And my sister said, dude, you're growing. And then once I got the same size, my sister, six foot one, I said, wow, I am growing, huh? So I just started, then all of a sudden, it started to click in. I said, wow. My sister said, why don't you go play some basketball with us sometime? But I never played basketball. Damn, I played football, you know, football. And your sisters were playing basketball. Did they get a scholarship through college? Yeah, they got a scholarship at uh, Louisiana Tech and Stephen F. Austin. Got it. And, um, yeah, they used to say, come, come to the gym with us all the time. You know, I, I went to the gym, but I was playing football in the, in the, in the park. And, but I never went to the gym to play basketball at all so one day i went out so the first time you're telling me you pick up a basketball and actually play is with your sisters and you're probably somewhere around 19 or 20 i'm about 20 and a half 21 20 or 21 is the first time you actually played basketball that's that's well i mean like you know you know the five on five three on three or four on four and yeah, actually that t- type of game yeah all right so you go out with your sisters that first time try to remember back that first time you go to the gym with them at the end when you're walking home are you saying to yourself hmm, i think i could do this i don't really because i i just thought it was like more like uh people just go to the gym play basketball have a good time and meet up with each other every day you know, drink some Kool-Aid or drink some, you know, whatever we can get our mouths on. And they'll just hang out all day long, five, six hours a day. I mean, playing football, basketball, whatever we get, where we got balls with. And that was it. And every day I walk out the house and I would have this, have this little routine I do every day. I go one by the fence right there, by the fence is about yay high, but I'd say about four foot. I said, I'll jump this fence every day. You know, I take a running start the whole time and just clear the fence every day. That was my routine every day. With not touching the fence, a four-foot fence. Swear to God. So you had a four-foot vertical leap. When you step up, step up, and just jump over, you know, something like that. So it was more like that. You know, just more like an activity because we all, all the kids did it. You know, everybody did it when they just run, run, jump over the fence and stuff like that. We just run, we run to the gym every day. And, and for me, when first went to play basketball with my sisters, they thought I played basketball all my life because I picked it up so quick. You know, I didn't know how to play organized basketball, but I knew how to shoot and, and you know, I didn't know how to dunk. But then once, you know, once I started going every day and I started to grow six two, six three, six four, then I started learning how to dunk. <laughs> hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So when do you realize that maybe, just maybe, you could go to college and get a scholarship for basketball? Is it when somebody approaches you or do you have in your mind, I can get out of this place through basketball? Never thought that. Never. Never thought that. I never thought that. I, I just thought, you know, I was such a big cowboy fan, football fan. I, I just thought that just going to play basketball with my friends, that was it. Because in Texas, obviously, the Friday night oh, lights every Friday is the high school. Football. Well, it wasn't it played this. It wasn't called Friday night back then. You talking about now? Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about, about back then. We just see a football game and have a good time and join with your friends and and just go blast the music all night. But yeah, when I realized that I can actually play, people started saying, "Dude, you can play basketball." You know, I, wow. Who taught you how to play basketball? I said, "No one." And this girl came from from this college in uh, Texas and uh, hey, would you like to go to you know the college and play basketball for this team? Good County, I said, I don't care, whatever. I thought it was a joke, right? So one day I went to the gym and the guy watched me and said, dude, you can actually play ball. You can play ball my six four. The next day, you know, you know, a couple months go by and stuff like that. All of a sudden I was like six eight. And I was six eight by six months I was like grew another four inches. And then all of a sudden now I got people coming out the woodworks who want me to go play college basketball, especially people that was in the gym that was playing for TCU, SMU, all over the country. They said, you should go play. And I was like, all right, great. So I went to go play at Cook County Junior College. And uh, this coach came and got me and said, would you like to have a scholarship? And I said, I don't, you know, me, I'm just, I don't care. I don't care. I thought it was like a joke. You know, I just thought I didn't, I didn't play along with it. I just more like, okay, I, I'll play. And um, and basically, that's how, that's how I learned when I could actually maybe get out of um, this poverty. You felt that vision at Cook or when you went to southeastern Oklahoma State? Well, it was more like the fact that when I went to Cook, I didn't know how to play organized basketball until I went there because they taught me how to do it. And I really didn't. And then really go to class and things like that because I didn't know how to do stuff like that, you know, in that in that environment. So I flunked out the first semester, and then I went back home. And then see, went back home. Then I went back to live with my mother. She moved to another apartment, and 
And then all of a sudden, she kicked me out again. <laughs> <laughs> you got kicked out you know, twice. Twice, oh yeah, Why did she now. kick you out the second time? I think it's more like she felt that I didn't care about her, you know, for her because I didn't want, I didn't support her as far as money was. God. And she just looked at us, okay, great, you're gonna be a bomb all your life, don't be a bomb here, leave. So she took all my clothes and put them outside. So it's like, all right, she's serious this time. So I went back in the streets again, back in the streets and go. You're homeless again. Homeless again. So I went back to the streets and lived with my friends. I lived with my friends every other day. Then one day a guy said, Dennis, would you like to come play on that basketball team? I said, okay, great. So every day I would live door to door, house to house or whatever, and, and go play this tournament every day for like a week. And then the last game, I guess I've had like 30 points, 20-something rebounds and something like that. I won the MVP. So after I won the MVP, I went and sat on the curve, and I'm like, didn't know where I was going. You know, I'm just, just trying to figure out which direction I was going to go, left or right, to somebody's house. So I had a trophy about this tall, but this tall sitting on the, on the curve like this, trying to wonder, you know, literally, which direction am I going to go today? And then I say, you know, here come my mother. <laughs> my mother walks up out the blue. And gives me a card, and the card had like 20 bucks in it. It said, Happy birthday. And she walked away. That's uh, pretty much that's, that's why I saw her for like another two months. So I was, that shocked me. The fact that's the first time she ever seen me play basketball. Did you know she was going to come watch you? Nope. I didn't know she was there. But somebody told her that I was playing basketball, and she came with her boyfriend and whatever. And she walked up right here and said, Here, happy birthday, and kept walking. Written inside, did it say, Love mom? Oh, no. We just said happy birthday. That was it. She felt bad, so she gave me 20 bucks. And I sent back then 20 bucks in 1981, 82. That was like a, like $1,000. <laughs> you know, that was like $10,000 back then in the ghetto. I mean, the projects, you can go buy your, you know, bicycle for that back then, <laughs> you know, 20 bucks. So I just looked at it like that, and she came and got me again. She said, come on, come back here. You know, I want you, once you don't live in the streets, I think you can play basketball and stuff like that. This is just amazing. You just painted the picture where you're on the curb. You got the most valuable trophy. Right. And you don't have a place to sleep. You're on a curb. And then your mom comes out of nowhere, out of nowhere. who never showed you any emotion, never gave you a card in your life, nope. never gave you probably money in her life. No, <laughs> no not like that. It's uh, just amazing. Never, never, never had no stuff, but I guess we didn't care. We didn't care because we knew that we were going to get fed every day. We knew that we had food stamps. We knew that we had, like, you know, Thanksgiving, we had, like, hornet's hands. We didn't have a turkey. <laughs> it was like hornet's hands like this, this small, this small. Everybody had one. Those things were there. It was now cool. you go to Thanksgiving, go to Subway, they have a turkey soap. <laughs> well, a little more than that, but <laughs> so, yeah. So how do you get to the point where you're off the streets and then you go to a bigger school, Southeastern Oklahoma State. And why Southeastern Oklahoma State? That was an accident. I told everyone, I said, that was an accident because when I went back home, you know, I was saying I was going to get a job. Then my mother said, if you're not going to get a job, why don't you go to the damn Army or the Navy or something? I was like, no, no. So I said, I ain't going, uh -uh. And I actually went down to the recruiting station to sign up for the Army. And thank God, you know, I didn't take that physical. <laughs> thank God I go back, you know, because if I would have went back, I'd probably be in the army at that time. But uh, and but I think I work for the admiral. <laughs> oh yeah, the admiral. Yeah. So yeah, and so I, you know, one day I was at home. I was just going, actually going to the gym, 
and got a knock on the door, and these two white guys were standing in front of me at the door, and they said, like, yes, it's like Dennis Rodman here. I said, who's, who's calling? I mean, who's, who's asking for him? He said, well, Lon Richman and Jack Hayden. I, I agree, cool. He said, you're Dennis Rodman? I said, yeah. He said, we're coaches from Southeastern Oklahoma State in Oklahoma. I said, I agree. He said, we'd like for you to come, you know, come down and do a tryout in Oklahoma. I said, all right, great, cool. And um, I, I really didn't want to go. As you know, most Americans with geography, we think Central America is somewhere in the Midwest. So how far was Southeastern Oklahoma State from where you were living? How many miles? I don't know, 80 miles. Got it. So you could take a bus there or they could send a car for you. Yeah, so, you know, they you know, had a van, they had a school van, they came pick me up. So I went down to, I went down to Oklahoma. And back then, racial, racial tension was really high, especially in that town. This is like in the early 80s. Yeah, it's like 80, 83 when I went there. And I went down to this, this town. I think this town was like 16,000 people, all white. But I went down and tried. I went down and tried out. I went down and tried out, and uh, and the guy said, "Wow, wait a minute, hold on. You could actually play, huh?" And I did everything right. You know, I did everything. Up. I rebound. I ran the floor. I jumped. I dunked and did stuff like that. And the guy said, "Do you want to come to school here?" I said, uh, "Yep." And, uh, and right then, I said, "Wait a minute." And I said, "Wait a minute. Wow, I can actually play basketball, huh?" So I signed a contract intent, you know. A letter me, of intent, yeah. Yeah, a letter of intent, and they gave me a three-year scholarship. And then I didn't know what that was, and they said, we gave you three years. So you were coming in, you'd already done one year at the other school, and you had three years left of eligibility in college? Well, I said I had four, because I really didn't actually go there. I mean, I actually went to like three, four months, and I flunked out of that college, so basically Got I, I had four years. And um, I signed a letter of intent, and so I think... I went back. No, and I actually st I stayed there for for a basketball camp. And I didn't, I don't know what to do. I mean, said, so, well, you can be for a basketball camp, and there's all little white kids running around, you know. There's like 400, 500 white kids. So I said, okay, I went to camp. And he said, okay, you'll be here for a week. You're staying in dorms and stuff. So I agreed. So I had no money, so he gave me some money, like 50 bucks for the week, for the week. And so I said, I agree. I stayed. So I stayed for the basketball camp, and uh, that's when I met that little kid. Brian Rich. Tell us about Brian Rich. When I first met him, you know, it was just like a, I was in, we were sitting there doing, a, you know, the, the skill training for the kids and stuff like that. Now I'm just trying to just, trying to pass time because I don't know what the hell to do, you know, just, just helping out. So you get, you know, next thing you know, you hear this beating on the door, right? Somebody just beating, beating, beating. And one of the counselors went over and opened the door and this this little white kid, like 10 years old, right? crying and kicking him, his mom and dad were literally picking him up and throwing him in the gym. So they actually threw him in the gym and he rolled on the ground. The next thing you know, he runs out the gym and next thing you know, they can't, um, grab him again, throw him back in the gym and then he, and he did it one more time. So this time when he, when he, uh, when he stayed in the gym, he sat down. I mean, it was insane, dude. I said, I just said, oh, you know, I feel so bad for the kid. I said, hey, great, I go over there. And everybody went over there to try to talk to him, you know, try to calm him down. I said, hey, dude, what's up, man? How you doing, man? Everything's cool? Well, he said, he said oh, fuck you. Like, Wait a minute. I said, well, I'm like, okay, all right. I'm tired of me to go. You know, and he used that N-word, like, damn, okay. <laughs> so, okay, he's fine. I went back over there. 
And I said, I'm just trying to help you out, man. Whatever, man. Whatever you want to do, something that's cool. It's cool. So it's like two hours pass by, and all of a sudden, that kid that just going crazy nuts, all of a sudden, he walks up to me. And he said, I said, you ready to play basketball now, man? You want to join us and have a good time? I said, whatever. He started playing ball. And he got into it a little bit, but he was he was still you know perturbed and upset because his mom and dad threw him in the gym. Then when the camp was over, we walk up to the other gym. So I went up there and you know shoot around, playing around by myself, having a good time. And say about thirty or forty five minutes into my what I'm doing, just shooting around by myself. Guess who walks to that door? That white kid. Now that kid that just I mean that kid that's sitting there I'm like oh my god screw you. N-word, screw you, screw you. He's in. The, he's right there at the door right there, just sitting there with his basketball. I say, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? He said, you waiting for your dad? I'm like, I'm picking you up. She said, no, I want to come play ball with you. I'm like, really? You know, I'm like, I actually turned around and said, yeah, this is the white kid that called me the N-word. <laughs> this is white kid asked me to play basketball. And I'm like, oh, my God. I said, all right, great. I said, all right, come on, man. Come on. We just shoot around, shoot around, shoot around. So they went off for like, I said, I do. Take care. He went, his dad came and picked him up. Take care of him. So next thing you know, every day, every day from that day on, it's like Monday through Friday, every day this kid would come literally right in the gym and come sit beside me. Every day. I mean, we just knew each other for like a couple hours, three hours now. I guess he actually started to like me because I'm like, I'm like, what, I'm naive too. I'm like a naive 22-year-old kid, you know, just trying to you know, be a kid. So every day he'll come and sit beside me every day. He said, what are we doing today? I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> I said, what are we doing? <laughs> Yesterday we were doing shit. <laughs> I said, so, so I was saying, wait, you go, he'll come right here with a smile. They're like, what are we doing today with, with basketball? He said, I, I said, we're going to play some games today. He said, I want to be on your team. I said, all right, I'm going to be on my team. So every day, you'll come play basketball on my team. And we win every day. And, I mean, it was just how the transformation came about from calling me the N-word to, like, hey, buddy, you know, stuff like that. And I'm, like, trying to, be, trying to like, keep it out of balance. I'm trying to keep it out of balance. I know this kid just like me because I'm black. You transformed him. Uh, well, I wouldn't say that because he didn't know me. He just knew that he thought I was more like a – a cartoon character because he never saw black people up close. What ended up <laughs> happening to him? No, what happened to him, I think the fact that when, when we got to be really, really, we actually got close in that week, me and him, because every day we played around, went to the store, got some slurpees, and just sit around and start talking basketball, maybe throw the football around the field, stuff like that. And he would go, he would tell me stories and say, you know, I went home and told my mother, I have this black friend. <laughs> so every day he come tell me the story. He said, I got this black friend that I, I, I really like, Mom. I really like this black friend, man. He never said I was a six foot eight, 22-year-old basketball player. You know, he said, this black friend. Did he bring you home to his mom? No, she, well, now, this, is, this is like after all this stuff like this. So he never told his mom, like I said, he never told his mom was a six-foot black kid and played basketball for, for the college. So he decided to bring his dad, his dad to the gym. And we was up there playing basketball, just me and him. The next thing you know, his dad walks in the gym, you know, country guy, cowboy hat, boots, wranglers, and, you know, the, the whole bullshit. And so, it's, you know, so, you know, I'm like, oh, well, we really, we really in the country now, huh? Because, you know, I'm like, he's like, you know, dirty because of working, whatever. So. Well, you know where he learned that N-word from. I think he just heard it on the news or he just, you know, whatever. But, um, so he walks in and he grabs my hand and said, Dad, 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 
I'm going to introduce you to my friend. He said, and the dad said, where's he at? <laughs> That's what he said, where's he at? He said, yeah, right here. This guy, he said, this your friend? He said, yeah, I, th I thought he was, a, and he actually said it out loud. He said, I thought he was like 11 or 12 years old. He said, no, he plays college ball here. I said, yeah, great. And then, you know, living in the tension, like I told you, like, you know, you know racial tension in the projects, going to this little town that was more racist than anything. I mean, there's no blacks live there. And he just blurted this comment out. He said, oh, my God, Dad, 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 you know what? I invited him to dinner. I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. You know, I'm like, don't say that, man. It's, and his dad looked at me like I was fucking, you know, like, wait, dude, I didn't prove that. He said, yeah, can he come to dinner? Can he come to dinner? And his dad said, yeah, he come to dinner. So, so you transformed the father, too. No, no. I mean, he just, just accepted because his kid. How so, was that dinner? No, and we went to the, we went to the house, and dude, I, I, you know this nice country house. They have a nice country house, all these cars and trucks, pickup trucks and stuff like that. So I go to the house, and he runs in the house, mom, 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 and it's my friend, it's my friend. So she's in the back, right? Whatever doing, she's doing in the bedroom or whatever the fuck she was doing. He said, oh, oh, yeah, oh, where's he at, where's he at? And like, <laughs> he said, there he is, right there. And I'm in the living room, and he said, that's it. She actually stood there and stared at me. Didn't even say, hi, how you doing, what's your name? <laughs> Just that stared at me. Then went back in the bedroom, and her husband walked right behind her because she just stared at me like I'm this blank stare, like, and she just turned around and went back in the bedroom. Huh? <laughs> and the husband went back in, and all I could hear her is crying. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh my God. You know, I'm thinking they're kidnapping me, you know? <laughs> they're gonna, you know, fuck my ass up or you know, shoot me or something because I'm so used to it, right? But I'm like, I'm in Oklahoma, don't know anybody. I'm just by myself out of here. So, she comes back out. She said, oh, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just, I just got really emotional because of my son." I was like, "All right, great." You know, so we eat dinner, and then he blurts out this other comment: "Hey, mom, dad, can you spend the night?" I'm like, "Oh my god, kid, kid, stop, stop, stop!" I'm like, "Dude, stop! No, don't do that, man." And, and she is like, she she started tripping. She's like. No, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, because you know, and I'm just, I'm just pretty much thinking what she's thinking. She's thinking I'm gonna sit here and kill her son or something like that. And she said, she said, no, that's not a good idea. No, no, no. You just need to, you need to go back to college and stay up there and just what do you gotta do and stuff like that. She pretty much told me to go get the fuck out, <laughs> get the fuck out of here, pretty much. You know, because we don't want your cut, your your kind in here. But I don't I understood what she was talking about. I understood where she was coming from because I'm six foot eight black. She don't know me. This kid just knew me for a week. You know, dad don't know me, and he wants me to spend the night. And the mom said, you know what? Okay, he can spend the night one night, just one night. That's it, no more. Just one night. And I and he said, yeah, 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 yeah. The kid's just running around the house, just going nuts, just going nuts. Oh my God, yeah. Oh my God. Wow, wow. Let's go play some basketball. So we go outside and play basketball on a concrete court outside the house right there. And when night came, about to go to bed. So the kid has has a bed like this, and he has, you know what a trolley bed is? Yeah, it's the trundle bed. The trundle bed. It's called. underneath the bed. That's what I'm trying to know about that shit. Yeah. And so it's like, it pulls out like this, right? So I said, all right, dude, so I'm gonna sleep. I thought I'd sleep in the other room or maybe in the den or something like that. Maybe in the den. No. The kid grabs me at the den and said, come here, you're gonna sleep right here. I'm like, right where, right here? 
He said, you're going to sleep right here. I'm like, all right, great. So I said, I agreed to it. So, so we lay down, and this kid that's talking my head off to like 1 o'clock in the morning, right? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it's time to go to sleep, man. It's just, we got to get up in the morning and go to, go to camp or whatever. So his mother comes in. You know, I love you, Brian. Kiss him on the forehead, whatever, and slams the door, right? The next morning, I wake up, and I'm, I, I looked up. I thought this kid went to school. You know, he loved us something. I said, wait a minute. Hold on, dude. Next thing you know, I turn like this. He's laying beside me. This is a true story, man. He's laying right beside me. I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. The next thing you know, I should have figured this was going to happen. Who walks in the door? Mom. Mom walks in the door and see her son right beside me. I mean, literally right beside me, like almost hugged me, hugging me, stuff like that. I'm looking up like, oh, this is not good, right? Because I, I don't know what to tell her. She just looks down like, and runs out the house. Runs out the house, like literally almost in the street, screaming, you know, screaming, screaming, screaming. And, and I, I'm like, on a fucking prison this time. I'm going to actually prison because they, they think I raped this kid. And, and and the kid wakes up and say, oh dude, wow, wow, you know, just having, you know, just laughing and joking, stuff like that. And he heard his mom crying outside and he gets up, runs outside and grabs her. And all of a sudden she's just sitting there holding him, holding him. And he said, mom, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? You know, he, he said, he said, he didn't do anything to me, nothing. He did nothing to me. No, no, nothing, nothing, nothing. And he said, no, I just I just laid down because I feel so comfortable being around him. And he had two brothers in the other room, older brothers, that was in college. So, but his brothers never loved him. Like, like he thought that I was his big, like his bigger brother, that I liked him. But his other brothers never gave him attention. So I just figured that out the next day when I stayed there again. And she said, um, the dad came home, he said, well, you want to do something for us? I said, yeah, what is? He said, my son would like you to stay over a while. Uh, so I got great, so I go get my stuff out of dorms. And to make it long story short, long story short, that day I stayed there, I stayed there for three straight years. You stayed there for three years while you were at Southeastern Oklahoma didn't, State. Then leave. I didn't know the fact that that kid, the week, I, I found this out probably a year later. That kid, reason why he was so upset and so tensed up when, when the first day at camp, he was out on a hunting, you know, camping trip or whatever, and he was hunting, and he loaded, he, he was loading a gun, a rifle, right? And as he was load, as he was loading a gun, the gun, as he loaded like this, the gun, boom, went off and shot his best friend right here in the stomach. Ten-year-old kid. So he killed his best friend. This is like by accident. They told him. They told me the story. Your latest. It was his accident. He did like this. Boom! The gun went off and shot the kid in the stomach. And the kid, the kid, when they took the kid to the hospital, he stayed. Brian stayed there for the whole time, and the kid died in his arms and stuff like that. And you can imagine what a kid go through, especially during that ten years old. And wow, dude, how much so affected I was. And I, I didn't realize why, why he was so erratic back in the day and I knew then I knew then why he got erratic why he was so upset why he's so upset because he used to sleep with his mom and dad for six months after that accident happened because he was so scared he was so scared that he didn't want to be alone so he slept with his mom and dad every night in the middle and um, 
Then the week before, they went to a swimming camp, and then they went to a University of Oklahoma swimming camp. And uh, I didn't know this story either. They told me this. So they were swimming. The next thing you know, Brian gets up the pool and said, hey, man, there's somebody down there. There's somebody down there in the pool. Somebody down there in the pool. And the lifeguard didn't pay no attention. He said, really, somebody's down there drowning. And the next thing you know, he, he dies down there. All of a sudden, guess what? It was a black kid down there. A black kid, not a white kid, a black kid, all people, a black kid that's on the bottom of the pool. And he went down and he went down and actually go get the kid. And they, he, he brings him back up. He take him to the surface and resuscitate him and stuff like that. And he lived. He lived. So it's like, uh, uh, uh. And I said, I'm like, wow. And I put all those things together. I said, maybe that's the connection that we have because, wow. It was like weird connection how we became like, we actually became really close. I mean, every day, we didn't leave each other's side. If you go buy a teacher and say, warm us on, he'll have warm malicious. You know, if you go buy a pair of tennis shoes, he'll buy a pair of tennis shoes. Everything I did, he did. And everything he did, I did. So it's like, whatever he wants to go to the arcades, I'd be the six-footed black guy, and, and I'd be the token black guy driving all the kids around, like Mr. Toy Guy, you know? So I drive around all these kids and stuff like that. But. Uh, it was a great experience because of that right there got me to the NBA, just being with that family. I just wanted to let you know if you ever want to get a gift for somebody special, you can do so at our merch store at berrycats.com. We have a ton of shirts in many different colors with a plethora of the most impactful quotes from the podcast that have resonated with you throughout the years. I know you're going to like them a lot. They're really, really special and of the highest, highest quality. And it's a special gift from me to you. For any item you choose, you can take an extra $5 off by just typing in the promo code Barry. So just go to BarryCats.com, to the store, check it out. I know you won't be disappointed. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out. We have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilljfk.com. Check it out. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. A lot of players don't make the NBA every year. A lot of players don't because it's only maybe 60, 70 players a year make it out of thousands and thousands and thousands of players around the world. So you gotta just you gotta look at your vision and say, well, if I can make if I can't make the NBA, maybe I can make the D League, maybe I can go make the European League, maybe I can make this league. But as long as you know that you can actually play in a league, 
that has maybe from C to A. Hey, you made it. To me, you made it. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.